This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Madison Connaughton, editor of the Saturday paper, joined me in the studio to talk about federal politics. Then, Dr Delia Lin, Senior Lecturer in Chinese Studies at the Asia Institute based at the University of Melbourne, joined me to talk about the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. We also discuss President Xi Jinping's governing ideology and aims. Then, finally, Geelong Football Club Vice President Bob Gartland and Geelong Gallery Director Jason Smith both joined me in the studio to talk about the exhibition currently on at the Geelong Gallery. It's called The Greatest Team of All, Treasures from the Bob Gartland Collection. The exhibition is being held to mark the 160th anniversary of the Geelong Football Club. We talk about the history of the Geelong Football Club as well as its inextricable ties to the Geelong community. I'm now delighted to have with me in the studio the fantastic Madison Connaughton, who is joining me to discuss federal politics, which um, we've been covering on this show recently in a a range of areas, mostly around um, welfare, and we're going to tackle some different topics today, um, and we'll get straight into it, really. Hi, Madison. Hey, thanks for having me. I feel like it's been ages since I've been here. I know. It does feel like (laughs) that. Too long. Is it like, hmm... Two months or a month? I don't know. Years. But it feels like years, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I'm so glad you're back. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's really nice to finally get to talk about some really important things. Um, let's just start with the breaking news that has just come out in like the last hour, um, which is around Donald Trump and Scott Morrison. And um, it's obviously interesting to see first up that Scott Morrison, who went over to America as a really special guest of the president, had a state dinner in his honour. Many um, things were, um, I guess, explored, including business relations. And we saw um, the Pratts. We saw, um, sorry, Gina Reinhart. So many different um, powerful Australians over there kind of networking and utilising this opportunity. Um, but now we see there's some kind of less positive associations with that trip and there were other negative things that happened that we might pick up on later. Um, but first up, let's talk about this conversation, a phone call that is, has apparently occurred between Scott Morrison and Donald Trump. Um, now, this has just been reported really and um, it's really interesting to see that it was a discussion around the Mueller probe, which was around Russian interference, alleged Russian interference, which basically proved to exist um, into the 2016 presidential election. And it was looking into whether Trump had colluded with the Russians or Russians in any way um, in that interference. Mm. What is this phone call and what significance does it have for us? What is this phone call? I I think that this is just another complicated twist in the the Russia interference Mueller probe story, uh, which basically happened before Morrison went over to the States. The Trump made some criticisms of Australia that Australia wasn't doing enough to um, sort of investigate how the Mueller probe started, whether there were um, inappropriate uh, origins for that inquiry. And uh, from what it looks like the timeline, Joe Hockey wrote to Mick Mulvaney, who is Trump's chief of staff, and wanted to clarify sort of why is the president tweeting out these things? Why is mm. he saying these criticisms of Australia? And then 
the follow-up to that was a phone call between Morrison and Trump where they spoke about it and Morrison reiterated his um, position which is that Australia is happy to help with these inquiries, we're happy to assist in any way that we can. When you look at the language, it's fairly mundane, it's fairly kind of what is diplomatic language. Discussions between leaders tend to be fairly... um, nice and sort of reciprocally nice but I think when you dig into it a little bit more it's very complicated because the origins of this inquiry obviously start with Alexander Downer uh, who was Australia's foreign minister in the early 2000s and his very strange meeting in London with George Papadopoulos uh, who was attached to the Trump campaign Um, and so that sort of triggered the FBI inquiry which led to the Mueller probe so Australia really has a central role in this and kind of it's sort of what are we saying here what are we happy to do what level are we happy to dig into our own um, associations with this how much uh, is Alexander Downer going to have to answer for for a one drink in a London bar (laughs) or two drinks it seemed like there were a lot of drinks a few Um, well a lot of people have said wasn't Alexander Downer doing his job for passing on this kind of information? What do you think, given that he was a diplomat in Britain at the time? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure, to be honest. I, I don't know what the scope of his, his role was, but I understand that if he felt that he needed to pass on that information, that it was probably appropriate given his posting. Um I, I don't think that he has gone outside the scope of what he was meant to do. I think if something triggered in him that this was not appropriate or something you know nefarious was going on that he needed to report, um, it seems like he would kind of understand whether that was in the scope of his role or not. Yeah, and it's interesting that this has come to light particularly after the controversy that's been happening in the last week around uh, Donald Trump speaking with the Ukrainian uh, head of state and essentially kind of twisting his arm into also looking into his uh, political enemies, including Joe Biden and Joe Biden's son. Um, And I mean, it just seems like there's a succession almost of phone calls or like these little kind of leaks keep happening and people who are working in the White House and even in Australia are, I guess, trying to keep in check some of the reckless actions of the US president. Um, What are your thoughts about this revelation in the context and the timing, especially of this this revelation um, with the Ukrainian one? Mm, I think that it seems as though President Trump doesn't understand that his conversations with world leaders are going to be recorded and transcripts are going to be kept for posterity because these things don't look good upon reflection. And I think at the at the time, given his, as you said, reckless impulses, they can just sort of feel like they're in the moment and they're having a conversation and it's business, you know, you're kind of, you're coaxing people towards the outcome that you want. Mm. But I think given his role <laughs> and given laws around retaining um, transcripts and retaining uh accounts of of conversations especially at this like top diplomatic level there's a lack of understanding there that these things will be kept forever and potentially used against you um and potentially you know very incriminating or Mm -hmm. an impeachable offense as we're seeing with the um with the conversation with the um, ukrainian leader yes it's going to be fascinating to watch given that we've been speculating around impeachment for a long time and that was more around the Mueller investigation and people thinking that that would unearth something which um it didn't really conclusively say 
did it? No, I mean, there was nothing in terms of the US reaching out to Russia or encouraging Russia um, found within that um, within that probe. But there was questions around obstruction of justice. So that was kind of a secondary mm. question within the probe. I think the impeachment inquiry now is potentially on a much stronger footing because the idea is that President Trump undermined his um, constitutional uh, requirements and and may have violated his constitutional role in um, in trying to encourage a foreign leader to um, to investigate Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden mm. over their links to Ukraine and in doing so wanted to influence the U.S. election because I guess the idea would be that. Um, Joe Biden is the front runner to become the Democratic nominee, so he's sort of encouraging a foreign leader to um, to interfere in a U.S. election rather than unencouraged, as as Russia appeared to appeared to be. Yeah, it's yeah, it's gobsmacking really to think about it. But I think you're right. I'm not sure whether he's aware of the unique elements of his role or maybe if he is, he's just not interested in the rules. Like he's just kind of oh whatever, doesn't apply to me. It's curious. There is a lot of amazing reporting about the Trump White House and what mm. and what it is like in there and how unconventional it is and how there's been this shedding of really experienced public servants because they have just not wanted to work in that environment. So I do think that there is a huge brain drain from that building mm. in the in the past few years under the Trump presidency. And there are a lot of people who have no idea what they're doing or what is required of them um, within that role. They've come from business, they've come from, you know, other areas where they don't understand um, what is necessary and legal and needed in that role I mean just being ignorant is not an excuse but I do think that there is a lot of people who are not sure what they're doing in that building right now Mm. and there's also a lot of people who their entire job has become sort of sucked into um, someone described it as sort of uh, controlling the de- like the reckless impulses of the president, so they're trying to rein him in and keep him from doing things like this, from getting on a phone call with the Ukrainian president and trying to twist his arm into investigating a, a rival, or getting on the phone with an Australian prime minister who is probably you know Trump's best ally, and then putting that uh, prime minister in a position where he's going to be sort of dragged through the media for the next week over this call. That doesn't yes. help a relationship. No, it does not, especially after the glow, which I think he probably had from such a warm reception from the Americans, at least. Yeah, it was definitely a red red carpet. Um, there was obviously the state dinner, the visit to Anthony Pratt's um, busy cardboard, busy cardboard yeah. recycling centre, which was just those photos were amazing, I think. Oh, my God, totally, with the, like, three men yep. next to each other and they all kind of looked the same. There like, was, it was a very, it was it was very bizarre, um, a bizarre visit. But I think, you know, Pratt has found, I, I think in the mix of things, Anthony mm. Pratt is a fascinating character. Like, he has found huge business opportunities in Trump's America. I don't think many other people really have. He's poured a billion dollars into factories um, in the US during the time that Trump's been president. So he's obviously finding there's something there Mm. for him. Huge tax concessions may be part of it. Yeah. But I I think it is interesting and and sort of who has, um, you know, led that relationship between Trump and Morrison. And I think Pratt is a key figure in that. Mm. Let's get to... America, Australia and China, because that's what came up, certainly one of the things that came up in the trip. Um, Donald, it kind of seemed almost like Donald Trump was 
bringing out some Trumpian elements of Scott Morrison. And Scott Morrison basically came to Donald Trump's side and was like, yes, I agree. Um, China is a newly developed country, which is the quote, um, and therefore they should not have the same kind of special rules applied to them in trade um, negotiations, in trade tariffs, um, through the World Trade Organization. And there became this kind of debate in the Australian Australian media around, well, is China developing? Is it emerging? Like uh, Labor said, it's an emerging economy. It was all these kind of weasel words as to what on earth China is. Emerging is such a um, is such a loaded term. I think anyone yeah. who's worked in the arts, like what is an emerging yeah. artist? It's just such a um, malleable term. Yes, exactly. And it's trying to say it's not they're not young. They may not necessarily be young, but they're like on the rise. But we don't know where in the ladder they're on the rise. Yeah, it, it kind of seems a little bit underhanded, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's trying to grapple with the fact that China is unlike anything else we've ever seen like I think it is this it's definitely a a rising economy but given its population it's probably one of the largest impacts on the global economy so I think that that grappling over terms is just that we don't really have a term to describe what it is Mm. and I and I you know I think developing economy when people think of that it's often a much smaller country that has um, a lot less of an impact on the global economy but in a lot of ways, it is a developing economy when you look at the key markers of what we think is a developing economy. So I, I think that that's, that's just reflecting how different China is. But, you know, you look at India or you look at Brazil, these are, the, you know, the BRIC countries, as they call them. Mm. They are very different from what we've experienced in the past um, in sort of economies rising up. Um, and they have an impact on the global economy, but also on global emissions as well, which I think is the key part of what kind of was coming up during the UN Climate Summit last week when Morrison was in um, was in America. Yeah, it was so controversial um, on many levels because he also then got into the Greta Thunberg debate and kind of, you know, it was a bit disappointing, I think, to see someone suggest that Greta's advocacy and leadership is somehow stoking anxiety amongst children that didn't already exist. Like, is it a little bit... Um, disingenuous to suggest that? Yeah, well, I think that kids have every right and reason to be anxious. There, yeah. <laughs> there is there is a huge issue that is not being grappled with in any sort of significant way. Um, Certainly and, not by Australia. Yeah, definitely not. And and I think that their, their concern is, is warranted and, and adults should be more concerned. And I, I think that, you know, as someone who I can say very... <laughs> clearly on live radio, was a very anxious kid. And I was anxious about really unimportant things. If Mm. I was a kid now and had climate change to uh, think about, I would definitely be very concerned. And I think it's also that feeling of, of, of feeling powerless. Like anxiety comes from feeling that you can't influence the situation that you're in. Yeah. And so you have hundreds of thousands and millions of kids taking to the streets because that's the option that they have to try and influence policy because it just seems like nothing is happening and it's happening so slowly, if mm. it is at all. Exactly. I was talking about this with some friends and we were saying there's this kind of middle generation. Um, there's, you know, the people who are children now obviously, who are very much lacking in agency, politically direct agency. Mm. They can't just, you know, head off to parliament and change things. And But there's also the millennial generation of myself and possibly you, don't want to assume, but it, it was like 
I was highly politically engaged as a child and as a, a person in high school um, when my friends would definitely not, basically no one I knew really was except my granddad and my dad and my mum. And so I found that, you know, I lacked that kind of political agency at the time. But even now, a lot of younger people who are in their 20s or just starting their 30s are still kind of in the early stages of their careers. And they may have a like a legal right to have political, um, you know, voice and to run for parliament and all these kind of things. But they're not in the ones who are the majority holding the positions of power because they're, you know, na- naturally in their 40s, 50s, 60s, um, because that's, you know, when you reach your, the high point of your career in general. Mm. Um, and so I feel like there's a lot of kind of people in the middle who also feel a little bit hamstrung, obviously not to the extent of, you know, children and adolescents, but how do they also have a kind of mass or majority effect of power? Because I, a lot of people say, well, will climate change actually start to um, be acted upon when this next generation have greater numbers in terms of those people who hold, you know, the seats of power in businesses, in um, parliament, all these other organisations. Clearly a lot of them lead not-for-profits and community groups and, yeah. What do you think about that? Do I think that it will shift once there's sort of a generational shift? Yeah, like is is there an issue that there's not like that age diversity in terms of leadership in these Mm. key political positions and powerful positions in society at the moment? And is that why climate change isn't – like clearly there are people of an older age who care about climate change, but they're not in the positions of power that we need them to be. Yeah, I think it is complicated because – if you if you want more younger people in politics, I think that is important. But there's also a, a young person who gets into politics who's sort of been in, um, you know, young Labor or young Liberal since mm. they were a teenager. They've gone through university politics and then they get into politics at the state or federal level. Um, and so that then there's also a, a question of, you know, diversity of life experience, diversity of, of employment experience mm-hmm. before going into politics. But I do think that in the past, you know, we've never had a particularly representative um, democracy. Like our our federal politics in particular has always been very uh, much older white men. That has been the history of our politics. But there have been times that um, community groups and um, industry bodies and unions have been particularly powerful and have been able to influence. So if you think of Accord um, in the 70s, there was a huge union movement that was able to push a government that was not particularly representative to completely reform the Australian economy. So I wonder now if we do have all of these young people leading mm. um, not-for-profits and, and community groups, if there can be a level of um, influence on on our politics, even if it isn't particularly age representative, um, yeah. to take action on this. Because I think, you know, once you have that pressure on politics, it can happen before we have to wait for 10 or 15 or 20 years for younger people to get into politics. Exactly. That's interesting because a lot of other people I've seen on Twitter have been talking about Greta and she's been saying, really, we can't wait to get into parliament. Mm-hmm. You need to do it now. And activism is the way in her mind to actually achieve it because one once everyone is calling on powerful people to do something, or at least the majority, then there is enough pressure, social pressure, political pressure, um, pressure on their own power and whether it will um, be retained to actually then take action. Do you think that that is kind of something that has been growing in Australia is a, a more of a social or activist 
movement? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that Get Up has been very powerful in Australian politics. I wonder if now Get Up will take a more active role or or sort of focus themselves more on climate change as an issue. I think after the election, um, they've clearly kind of gone back to their HQ and are trying to work out what they're going to do next because they haven't been that sort of active um, in the last few months. But I, I wonder if they're climate probably change... probably like Labor figuring out what the hell happened yeah, in the election. I mean, they're probably still doing a review and trying to work out what the hell happened exactly. Yeah. But I, I do wonder if they will focus more of their activism towards, um, towards climate change. I think you see, you know, mad effing witches and um, sleeping giants who are sort of divestment um, Mm. focused activist groups um, doing more and more towards um, climate change so I I think that those those groups will be quite effective but I, I think that there is sort of a lack of an apparatus to really push for for change from the business level um in Australian politics which I you know I hope sleeping giants will perhaps be effective on influencing sort of climate policy um, in that sense. They're very effective on Twitter, Mm. um, especially in those debates when media personalities say some hideous things and um, they've really led to a lot of companies withdrawing their advertising dollars from key programs and people. Yeah, and I think business is a key part of this even, you know, there's obviously a... always a, an argument, do you want to change politics from the inside or from the outside? Mm. You know, do you want to be an agitator or do you want to be someone who's kind of working in the machine? But I think that business is a key part of, of very, very quick change on climate change, um, it's quick true. policy change. Mm. And, I mean, Rick Morton in the Saturday paper on the weekend had a, had a piece about Morrison's week in, in the US and kind of what he said is – these Im- these impacts that are being warned in, in at the UN Climate Summit, you know, which we were not invited to because we don't yeah. have a strong enough climate policy. And I think that that was quite stark, that it was Australia, the US, Brazil, and maybe a handful of other countries that weren't invited to speak. And and these are kind of extreme people on, on climate change, um, and we are with them. So I yeah. think that that was quite a stark image. Mm. But kind of what Rick said in his piece was that these impacts are already happening in Australia. You have insurance companies refusing to insure houses because they are at such risk of climate disaster. 100,000 houses in Queensland that are uninsurable at the moment and that will number will just grow because of fire and flood and and sort of all all of the pestilence kind of um so I I think that you know these these things that we're we're worried about business is already seeing that they're happening and is already kind of planning for them and and trying to retain profit while while everything else is going to hell in a handbag but um I do think that the business aspect of this equation hasn't been sort of factored in for Australia quite yet. That's true. And I think I've been seeing a lot of um, highlighting from these regulatory bodies, particularly APRA, has been talking about climate change for quite a long time. And it's finally getting through to, you know, true action to say this is actually a real reality now in terms of insurance, for example, which is such a... Yeah, it's a massive issue, isn't it? It's, I mean, and it's kind of boring. Like that's yeah. the thing that it is kind of. It's, <laughs> it's kind true. of to think about like the insurance rate of domestic housing <laughs> and things like that. Like your eyes glaze over. Yes. But this is kind of a canary in a coal mine mm. situation. Not to you know stretch the coal mine terrible <laughs> metaphor too far, but 
you know, these are, are people who have entire departments um, dedicated to trying to work out how their business will still be viable in 10 or 20 years. So I think that, you know, insurance is a big one. I mean, another thing that Rick pointed out in his piece is, you know, the largest supercomputer in the Southern Hemisphere is at ANU and it holds all of Australia's climate data. So all of the bomb.gov data, all of the IPCC data. Wow. The cooling system that was installed to keep this huge supercomputer cold mm. uh, is ceasing to function because of it's an evaporative cooling system. And in climate change, humidity becomes more of a problem. So, I mean, just even the irony of that, that there are all of these problems that are starting to crop up already and they're already yeah. affecting key infrastructure. Um, we're just not really thinking about that in any sort of meaningful way. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, my conversation with Bob Brown just before that protest in the city. And he was saying it's just really convenient and it's almost part of human nature to want to be in denial about something so existential as climate change. And it's, you know, an understandable response to something quite distressing, but you need to get past this point of, oh, well, it's in the future or, oh, that can't necessarily be definitely linked to climate change. So, you know, we won't worry as much. That's the kind of um, angle, I guess, that Scott Morrison is banking on is to say, oh, well, let's be optimistic, you know, which is what his language was around climate change at the UN is we need to be more optimistic and have a bright future. And, you know, there was a little jibe from Donald Trump to Greta over Twitter about her being so positive and happy and excited about a bright future. Um, You know, this is a little bit concerning to see the kind of spin that is happening that we're trying to, you know, I guess, mask the denial that does exist. Yeah. And I look, I think that it is um, a pretty frequent um, criticism of the Morrison government that they want to look like they are um, the appearance of action is, is sort of a, a, a big thing without um, substantial um, change or reform underlying that. I think, you know, if we have time to get to sort of all the superannuation stuff that's going on this week, that's sort of another example. Or, for example, the drought fund, um, which is a, a sort of a big a big criticism this week, the the idea that there's $7 billion being poured into um, to helping, you know, regional areas that are affected by drought, but but Labor says that, you know, that's not really happening, that's not hitting anyone on the ground. So no, I think it's not. the appearance of action without any substantial um, foundation under that is, is a criticism that's being repeatedly levelled at this government. That would be very correct. <laughs> Excellent observation, Madison. Let's get to the retirement and superannuation review because I, this I know... This is such a fascinating talk. Yes, insurance. Insurance. Superannuation. <laughs> Don't switch off. I swear it's fascinating. Um, we Well, it is really important though because the superannuation system is compulsory in Australia. It was set up to enable people to be independent in their older age when they retire. Um, it's not necessarily worked out that way for some people, especially those who didn't buy four homes um, and to negatively you know, gear them and buy them with some of their superannuation. Uh, but this has become a massive issue, particularly with women, I think, as well, who are... Ex- Older women in Australia are substantially impoverished compared to their male counterparts and do retire with much less. But that isn't what this is necessarily about. It should encompass that. But it's actually a huge review of the whole retirement um, and it, that encompasses superannuation system. Josh Frydenberg announced this 
on Saturday. It was slated uh, in the federal election, but of course that doesn't necessarily mean something's going to happen. What is this review going to look into and what's been some of the controversies we've seen come from that? Because there have been a lot of um, anxieties that have been raised from Labor and also the industry uh, superannuation groups who are concerned that superannuation in particular and the rise or the next step up in terms of the percentage of super that workers will be entitled to may not happen. Yeah, so this review is the first review in 30 years of Australia's retirement income system um, and it's going to look at the interaction. My understanding is it's looking at the interaction between superannuation, compulsory super, voluntary payments and the aged pension um, and how those things are all working together and influencing one another. Um, I think that to understand the criticism of um, of the rise to 12%, um, which is slated to happen by 2025, you sort of have to look back to the end of last year when Grattan released that report, which kind of said it raised concerns that um, a rise to 12% wouldn't necessarily help low-income earners. Um, that was kind of what they flagged, that there may be um, they may actually earn less over their lifetime um, by rising to 12%, so, mm-hmm. which is kind of unexpected from Grattan. You know, it's sort yes. of a, quite a pro- new, uh, an Fairly. independent think tank. Yeah, um, progressive-ish. A progressive-ish think tank. Um, but... <laughs> Sort of this um, this report that they put out sort of started this conversation that had been going on, but sort of kickstarted it about whether we should be looking to rise to twelve percent. Is is the theory that um, employers would funnel the money that they would have put into wages growth into superannuation into that requirement of an extra three percent? I think that that's a big part of it, um, and and that we've already had pretty stagnant wages, so I think that there's a concern that wages growth will be further impeded by this sort of required extra 3% um, of, of super that employers will have to pay. Um, I think another big part of it is that, um, uh, like, it will affect lower income earners more so than higher income earners because we already have this sort of gap where higher income earners, they're taking advantage of self-managed super funds. As you said, they're taking money out of super to buy property that they're a lot more engaged in, um, in how they use their super and how they sort of, um, have their retirement income. I think for lower income earners, a lot of people just sort of rely on their self-managed super fund. I mean, on their super fund to kind of tick over and, and have compound interest over time. So I think there's a concern that, that that gap will grow further if there's more money in the super industry. Mm. There's also, though, the argument that was running over the weekend about um, the concern that suddenly some people have around the coalition's tax cuts, which really do disproportionately benefit people on higher incomes and will actually take a lot more from people on lower incomes. So there's also another argument that the government isn't necessarily facilitating the greatest picture for people who are struggling. Yeah, I mean, there has been a lot of criticism of the of the tax cuts that they weren't particularly thought through. And I think that they there is a concern that they exacerbate issues within our economy already. You know, we have this super gap between men and women, between high-income earners and low-income earners, and these tax cuts seem to just be exacerbating that further. If we track that out over to 2025 when this increase is supposed to happen, it it seems like there'll be a sort of a more stark um, difference in retirement income between low-income earners and high-income earners. Mm. But I think the inclusion of Deborah Ralston on on their retirement income review is really 
really interesting and the controversy that that's kicked up because I think Jim Chalmers um, sort of really went after her and said that, oh, what was it, that she, um, a prominent, dedicated and well-known campaigner against the Labor Party. So very strong words. And, and she's kind of an academic at RMIT. She's worked at Monash. She's also on, she's the chair of the Self-Managed Superfund Association. Um, so I think that there's a lot of concern that she's sort of involved in that and has um, advocated for voluntary super. That's right. Um, yeah. Which is... That's instant- very controversial. Yes. Well, I think, you know... It's it's a key difference between how you see how the economy should work. You know, this is coming back to like, should we enforce savings or should we let people spend their money how they think they should? And, you know, there is a lot of evidence that sort of forced savings is probably a safer option because, you know, if you just give people the money now and hope that they spend it well, that can be... Um, that can not always work out well or things can happen. Yeah. So the idea of super, I think, when, when it first started was that we force savings and we force people to kind of put this money aside mm. in order to plan for the future. Yeah, um, and compound interest is a beautiful thing for a lot of people. It definitely is. Yeah. Um, and I, I saw that Bill Kelty came out and, and sort of really slammed the not taking the voluntary super off the table. Um, so Bill Kelty is sort of seen as the... Um, the mastermind of the superannuation um, guarantee in Australia. Mm. And he he said it was terrible. He said that they were stripping money off low-income earners. You know, if you want to help low-income people, I think he said don't steal their savings. So really strong language from Bill Kelty um, who – you know, has defended this this scheme in the past, which has its issues, but is also probably one of the largest um, and wealthiest um, super, you know, retirement income um, schemes in the world. Mm. Well, it just reminds me of when we had the franking credit um, inquiry and that having a lot of emotive um, elements because it was tied to people's retirement income, even though it was an informal um, mechanism for people to have a, a comfortable, more comfortable retirement, it definitely got people really up and about. No doubt this is going to cause similar elements of that, but more so among those in the labour and union movement. Yeah, I mean, I think that labour holds really close to its heart the superannuation guarantee you know this is a policy that was brought in well it was actually first brought in under accord um but in a small way by the unions in, mm. a, in a few industries but then was you know vastly expanded under Hawke and Keating and it is very forward-thinking country-changing policy it's a policy we don't really see anymore a thing that yeah. can completely transform a country's economy it's sort of that big thinking that we just don't have in politics anymore and so I think the idea that this this incredible thing that was done could be completely um, changed or reformed or, you know, um, it could be nobbled or whatever it ends up looking like. I think yeah. there's a real fear within Labor and the unions that this could be, um, compl- you know, could change super. But I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is that there are a lot of union managed super funds and there is a lot of money in super funds for um for the unions so i think yeah. that that is that is part of the reason they are you know 
concerns. very strongly um, worded statements about about particularly changing the industry because it is very profitable for a lot of people. And they were the top performing funds um, and became more popular after the financial royal commission into banking and superannuation because of the revelations we saw about some of the for profit um, business, you know, tied to banks, um, superannuation arms, which really, um, yeah, some of the revelations were quite shocking. It was interesting to see that, you know, the industry supergroups got a big uptick in people signing up after that. Mm, definitely. But, I mean, this is a really powerful industry in both the for-profit and not-for-profit mm. sector. And, the you know, the idea that a, a small, you know, a reform in the in the economy could create a, what, it's $2.8 billion industry, more than that. More, yeah. 2. 8, so. Is it trillion? No, trillion no. is stupid. Our, our economy, <laughs> I just checked and it was like 2.7, no, 2.7 trillion. Yeah, I can't remember now. I just checked it last night. There's my memory for you. Um, but yeah, like it's massive. And and that re- reminds me of a little anecdote that was women used to be um, dominate superannuation boards bef- like in the early days of the superannuation industry. That was like a really important sector for women. And then as soon as all that money kind of grew and grew and grew and it became pretty much one of the most dominant sectors in the whole of Australia, what do you know? The boards became majority male. Yeah, I mean that's fascinating. I yeah. and I and I wonder, you know, whether the super gap is going to be something that is looked at in this retirement income review because I think it is really important. And I know that there have previously at least been in PM&C, the Prime Minister and Cabinet, um, a a kind of sort of group looking at how to close the super gap. I'm not sure if that group is still currently working, but I think that it was something that Morrison tasked some people in his um in his team with looking at. Mm. Um, so if that that is going to be in the retirement review, I think it would be pretty important to look yeah. at. Yeah, it would be an oversight if it wasn't. I'm just um, fact checking us, and there is almost 2.7 trillion in assets. What do you know? I was right, Go trillion you. with a T. That's amazing. It rivals the Australian economy. Yeah, literally. It's, it's so it's this you know. That's crazy. It's the shadow of the Australian economy. Yeah, it literally is. Um, and Goodbye mining sector, hello superannuation. Yeah, I mean, and it's already there. And and I guess the question would be, you know, what can you do with that money while it's sitting there? Um, yeah. and, and Invest I, in infrastructure. Yeah. yeah. So I think that, you know, a question that could be looked at in this retirement review is is what could be done with that huge pool of money that's sitting there while, while we're waiting for it to compound interest. Yeah. Madison, it's been so fun to talk with you and I really appreciate you sharing your expertise and insights with us today. Thanks for having me back. I've been speaking with Madison Connaughton, who is the editor of the Saturday paper, which you can pick up on a Saturday and any other day, really. I think they're still kind of around, but like not as obvious. Um, and any it's day online. of the week. It's yeah. online at all times, but you know, the the print edition is quite Special. nice. You it can is. feel it in your hands. It's so nice. And also congrats on hiring Rick Morton, who's such a wonderful journalist. Oh, thank you. He's, um, he's got a very interesting piece this weekend coming up, I think, about uh, aged care. So oh, awesome. Stick around for that. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now, I'm really pleased to have with me in the studio Dr. Delia Lin. And uh, Delia, 
is an academic at the University of Melbourne. She lectures in Chinese studies at the Asia Institute and that is part of the arts faculty. And we're going to be talking in just a moment about the founding of the People's Republic of China, which was 70 years ago today. So it's a very important date for a number of reasons, political, cultural, social, and uh, no doubt Many people are aware that China has a long and ancient history uh, in terms of its existence, but the modern form of China, the Communist Party state version of China that we see today, is 70 years old. So I now welcome Delia into the studio to talk about this. Hi, Delia. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. It is great. And Let's, before we get into this subject matter, I'm just interested in why you particularly chose this field to focus on in your academic um, professional life, because, you know, it's something that one must be really committed to and, you know, you must work substantially hard to actually achieve the things you have so far in your career. Uh, well, uh, good question. Um, I came from different disciplines. I was trained in linguistics um, back in China, uh, in English linguistics, actually. And uh, then when I came to Australia in 1997, pursuing my PhD, I was thinking about what area to be focusing on. And in the beginning, I wanted to focus on translation studies and looking at how words have been translated and used. Um, but then uh, that was what I was trained in, in translation studies and also linguistics. So I've always been interested in words and the power of words and, and ideas behind words. Mm. But at the time when I was pursuing my PhD at Griffith University, um, back then, I was fascinated with one word, um, which is sujit. Um, that word, we can't really find a good English translation of it. Uh, mm. there, were, there have been many translations and, and roughly it's translated as human quality. But the fascinating thing about this word is that it became so ubiquitous and it was used everywhere in policies and during a very short period of time it became extremely popular. Mm. So I decided to, to look at that word and why it became so popular and what it is in me uh, that I'm rejecting using that word at all. Um, so I wanted to find out ideas behind it and how the process of the development of that word. So that's all how it all came about. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, in your book that you're just referencing there, which was published in 2017, um, you say that Sucha um, only rose to prominence in the late 1980s, but has permeated official and intellectual discourse and is used by um, people who live in China as well and presumably beyond. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that word itself, of course, you could have found that word in ancient Chinese literature, but it meant totally differently. Mm. Um, but then as a modern word, it was actually a translation from Japanese, and which was a translation from German. So it was a translated concept. But of course, then when that word was introduced to China, uh, in modern China, contemporary China, that it went through a long process of development. But it has, uh, it was a word that was um, randomly used by, by people to refer to sort of qualities um, and also was used in agriculture as well to look at qualities of uh, of, uh, of plants, young plants, mm. of rice, rice plants basically. And um, and then it rose to prominence actually in the early 80s and to mid-80s. By mid-80s, that word has already been uh, extremely popular and there were so many compounds that have been created out of that word. So you could actually talk about 
a a person's psychological 素质 a person's、uh, moral 素质 a person's overall 素质 and so it became a a word. Uh, that uh, and also a concept idea uh, that uh, that is used to make sense of the world and make sense of China and also development of individual and also society and nation as well.、Mm. Well, it seems like it's a really flexible term that can be used for different purposes. Doesn't exactly it? right. Yeah, and so you write about Suzhou Gao and Suzhou Di. Um, as being two different kinds of ways of using it and describing a person or assessing their worth or quality level, how is Sucha used at the moment in these kind of ways of people assessing each other and their、um, their conduct? Yeah. So. Um... Um, it, it is used by、um, so then the the word was has been fully developed in、uh, mid eighties with all those compounds and all that and there were many many intellectuals、um, wrote about it so that whole process was a complex process and and I traced the entire process how that word how the ideas get socialized and and also how that is、um, related to traditional ideas of Confucian especially、mm-hmm. Confucianism um, to look at why、uh, that has gradually Actually, become what we call habitus—a kind of habit、uh, that people don't think about it, taken for granted. There was no resistance to it.、Um, it's.、Uh, It's used in many different ways in everyday life. So, as you've just mentioned,、uh, this lower suit and high suit. So, it's a it's a magic word that can be differentiated and totalized at the same time. So,、um, if anything happens, you could say, well, that's due to、uh, the lower suit, lower particular type of suit with that person, which、mm-hmm. also means that this person's overall suit is is in question, and that could justify when it's used in political sense and that kind of discourse, that kind of way of looking. Looking at society and look at human beings can justify control, social control, justify any type of surveillance.、Mm. And for example,、um, the building of a Great Wall of China is justified around Suzhou to say that there are people in China that have low Suzhou, they're not capable of discerning, of developing this media literacy, of discerning bad news, good news from bad news, or truth from truth from lies. So that we have to build a Great Wall to protect. The people, and then because of this prevalent use of suji, that kind of idea that human beings somehow they are insufficient. Human beings require certain kind of control and pastoral care in order to make them become good citizens.、Uh, that kind of idea because so permeates into the society. So even when people question this type of surveillance, and I've met so many people who say, well, maybe the government has a good reason for doing that because. Indeed, there were people who like kind of suji without thinking. Well, is that rationalization logical, or,、mm. or, or, or can we actually have a different way of looking at society? Yes. Does that mean that、um, individuals' behaviors must be regulated to a high level? Yeah, exactly, and all the time because、mm. every single behavior may be a manifestation of a lack of particular kind of suji, and then so the government、uh, has to implement some sort of mechanism to make sure that your every aspect, because there were infinite compounds, there were infinite aspects, so that means that the government can actually exercise infinite control and and a control and also a kind of、uh, pastoral、uh, in the name of pastoral care、mm. to human beings. 
Yeah, it does make me think it's quite a paternalistic way of oh, absolutely. treating one's citizens. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, because what, what it boils down to is that there were people that who would consider themselves as a civilising centre, uh, that they are actually in the position of civilising uh, the others or mm. of raising others uh, within us as a suja. And usually it is, it is uh, uh, the 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 patriarchal, it is the power, the authority, which is patriarchal authority uh, that does that. Yeah, well, let's bring in the um, government, the Chinese government, central government and the Chinese Communist Party, um, because that is obviously central to our discussion about a 70-year anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. For those who aren't au fait with Chinese history, and like it's a thousands and thousands of year history so we won't get to all of that but in terms of this pivotal moment that we're in now and the 70 years prior um, before there was this so-called Chinese republic or state what was there because this is really the Mao Zedong era where there's a cultural revolution um, and it China is not necessarily the China that we know today what was the China of of before before Mao Zedong, yeah. Oh well, probably before, f- before, before Mao, Mao and and maybe after. So because I'm yeah. I'm thinking of um, the seventy year point as I guess a a kind of a marker of difference, but obviously it wouldn't be that clear cut. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're absolutely right. There were continuities and there were differences. Mm. Absolutely. There was always a linkage to the past and Xi Jinping is doing that consciously uh, to build this cultural legitimacy, to build uh, this cultural nationalism as well, to say that, um, uh, to build the legitimacy of the PRC based upon culture, based mm. upon tradition or, or, or the kind of tradition that is uh, couched by the government or is kind of promoted by the government. So, um, um, of course, all over, over the years, China has gone through, if you just look at the, the pictures, look at what the major events that have happened, uh, China, of course, today is a very different one to, to the one under under Mao uh, during Cultural Revolution. It's a very different country. Uh, so um, 70 years, that's from 1949 to, to, to now, and that really marks China as the longest surviving uh, communist regime, socialist regime, and it's massive, it's big, and with 1.4 billion people. Mm-hmm. And it seems that it's going strong, even though we also can argue that's fragile at the same time. Uh, so, And Xi Jinping certainly wanted... The interesting thing about uh, the Xi Jinping course the new, new, new era, uh, so the uh, political ideology that... Uh, with Xi Jinping's name etched to it is called uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics actually Xi Jinping socialism <laughs> with Chinese characteristics for the new era mm-hmm. so so he would mark it as a new era we're all different we are very different now um, but if you look at some underlying um, ways of doing things, uh, that there were definitely continuities. But what is uh, particularly interesting about yesterday, we're talking about the 70th anniversary, um, is that uh, yesterday um, uh, Xi Jinping and also other top leaders visited uh, Mao Zedong Memorial Hall. And that was extraordinary um, because, uh, yes, Mao Zedong's Memorial Hall would be visited by top leaders, but usually on the on the um, anniversary, the birthday, the birth anniversary of or the the birthday of Mao Zedong, mm. not during the founding, not during the celebration or or, or before the celebration of the founding of the PRC. Um, 
because the PRC has been, uh, the Communist Party needed to be very careful uh, with uh, Mao Zedong and how to how to appraise him, how to assess him. Uh, because after the Cultural Revolution, uh, the PRC, the Communist Party, did admit that Cultural Revolution was a mistake. Uh, but now uh, they've changed the story a little bit and also changed the story about Mao Zedong as well. So that was a very strong political message to show that Xi Jinping wanted to link somehow this new era with a Mao era, which is for us China watchers and who studied on China, this is fascinating, but it's also very scary as well. Uh, so what elements of the Mao era that he wanted to bring back, mm. and which is something uh, that um, that is sort of that we, we can wait to see. Yeah, well, some people have drawn the obvious kind of conclusions around this continuity or at least the similarities between leadership style or even um, the way that they're perceive their role Xi Jinping has like changed the rules essentially and said instead of having 10-year terms I'm going to govern until I die which could be any length of time Um, and a lot of people I know who have been interested in this were quite um, surprised because well I mean that's something which of course would be Pre, kind of in a, in a Mao era, in the sense of this deification almost of a singular figure of the of the Communist Party and the Chinese government, um, but also that he would almost um, single himself out, in particular for the positive role that is you know governing a country, but also for the burden which is um, being that governing leader for life and also then almost becoming a target, a self-anointed target of other political rivals. Mm. It, it's kind of interesting to see this um, grasp to, of power that has been happening. What, was, what, what do you make of Xi Jinping's decision to change the rule around leadership terms and, um, you know, putting himself in this very substantial, singular mm, position? Mm. So, yeah, um, very good question. I mean, it's something that is very difficult to find just one single answer. And it's a, it's a question uh, that I think everybody's pondering over. What, what, why, is, why would anyone do that yeah. without a successor, which is uh, really a game changer, uh, and without a successor uh, of the uh, PRC of the CCP, uh, then what's going to happen after after he dies, or if anything happens to him, who's going to continue with the work? Um, so that was uh, that was very puzzling because from any um, common sense, uh, from any common s- of any any person's perspective, it's very difficult to perceive. It's very difficult to conceive uh, that kind of idea. Um, but. Uh, if we look at the history of uh, the PRC and also the CCP, China actually has gone. If we just if we say China, in a, as a general in a general sense, uh, that has gone through many stages where where China could actually go many different ways. So when Xi Jinping took over in 2012, um, well end of or 2013 actually or officially, uh, and at end of 2012 there were many speculations on where Xi Jinping might take China to 
at the time. Um, and especially when he was saying the importance of constitutionalism, of constitution itself. And then uh, many um, Chinese people and also the elites were thinking that perhaps China um, is becoming, is go- was going to become more liberal. Because with the economic development, with the liberalization of economy, uh, what's going to naturally happen uh, is that it's liberalization of uh, civil liberty and also um, more civil liberty, more more attention to human rights um, because people are more um, aware of the mm. individual rights, of the liberty rights, and, and they would like to participate in, in political life. And that's very natural, and especially uh, the rise of the middle class when they uh, were when they had uh, some economic power, and naturally they would would like to participate um, more in decision making in the decision making process. So it seems that China was on the way to democracy, and indeed China could. There were so many times China could, and in the eighties as well. So there were many many crossroads. China yeah. has passed many crossroads. So at that time there was speculation as to where, especially coming uh, with his background, his father was a known uh, reformist and uh, ra- ra- well. In, in the Chinese sense, right wind, but it means that uh, he would like to uh, make China a more dem- democratic country. Uh, so coming from that background, and the speculation was that um, that he would take China on that path. But then very quickly, uh, that was proved wrong because uh, all the... Um, uh, um, speculations or media reports uh, on calling for constitutionalism uh, in China uh, were banned very quickly. So very quickly then people realized that probably he would take on China on the different path. So the path he has chosen, so what are the... Um, um, so he was reflecting on what made China strong, but strong in the sense of wealth and power, in the sense of uh, in the sense of unity of the people. Uh, and of course, Mao invented the three uh, magic weapons: um, United Front and um, uh, Party Construction, and all that. So, um, so he wanted to bring back, and, and somehow he thought that this would work uh, for China because at that time. Uh, Problems, a lot of problems that are that China was facing. One of them being uh, corruption uh, of the party leaders and also the cadres of the system. Uh, so that was uh, the first one of the first things he had to deal with. Uh, and then in Mao's era, that wasn't a problem. Um, but then, with coming with economic development, uh, then comes with enormous corruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way and. And somehow he had decided that the way to solve the problem is to bring discipline back. So disciplining uh, those 89 million party members and also uh, all the officials. So yeah. that's why that's why uh, he went on uh, this hardcore. It's very difficult to give a name to this kind of a regime. Mm. And perhaps we can call it ideological state, which is uh, another similarity we see between Xi Jinping's era and the Mao's era. Uh, that ideological state means that there are um, there are doctrines uh, that no one is allowed uh, to break. Uh, so there was uh, there were the political ideologies are everywhere. So today, if you ask ordinary Chinese people, is ideological is ideology real? They would tell you, yes, it is real. And everyone is aware uh, that there were there were constraints as to what they can say. Indeed, it reminds me of the controversy that's been happening around this cor- corruption crackdown, which 
didn't um, spare anyone. It even um, affected Deng Xiaoping's family as in, you know. There are so many, um, I guess, controversies around taking back funds that, you know, the party believes is theirs and the government's. Yeah. Um, how has that, how has Xi Jinping been received by his uh, fellow party members? And is that um, potentially why he's been securing his uh, position of power and ensuring that he yeah. does also head up the military? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, uh, from his experience, he knew that fractions, I mean, fractions are always there. And he's, he's uh, uh, we call him prisoning. He came from that revolutionary family. And he's seen the ups and downs of the officials. And he knew that the only way to stay in power um, is to uh, have a, a tightened grip on power and then not allowing any any different views because uh, that polit- the political struggle, and that's why also recently he used the word struggle and he said battle and he said the the survival of the communist party is uh, is a process is 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 a process of struggling of uh, of or battling, you always have to battle with enemies. So enemies, mm. not just referring to external influences, but also enemies from within, uh, his own rivals. And he and we also saw how he treated his rivals and how he treated his uh, political enemies. So he knew that if he didn't grip, have a uh, have a, a tightened grip on power, that that he would end up like his father or like the rivals that he fought against. Mm. Um, for background, how did his father end up? What was his fate? Oh, he was um, uh, so he was one of the top um, officials in China, mm. uh, vice premier. Um, but then um, he, his view was to liberalize, is to give people more more power, is to uh, to bring more de- democracy to the society. And uh, during Cultural Revolution, then he was removed from his post, and mm. the entire family was sent uh, to the countryside. Um, so uh, and and uh, so Xi Jinping has been through, has witnessed, and has been through all these hardships and suffering, and knowing that. Um, in in that position, um, you can be a hero one day and uh, can be a prisoner the next. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, it's interesting when we're looking at how Xi Jinping is um, formulating his leadership and his ideology and how that then is enacted. It's um, quite fascinating the threads that you highlight and that many others have highlighted in his thought that are um, harking back to a very, very ancient period in Chinese history, um, the Warring States period, for example. And some people um, have made comparisons between the Qing Dynasty's kind of leadership and his, which may or may not be complementary. Um, and so I'm interested in those threads that are in his thought that we've seen in his book, for example, which you mentioned, about the, the types of people that he references and sources and quotes as being important to the education of Chinese um, Communist Party officials, um, but also the broader society. And I'm thinking in particular about Confucianism and this interesting idea that really Mao was pushing against Confucianism and we've seen a return to the prominence of Confucianism. 
Yeah, it's very interesting that uh, Confucianism seems as always, always never, never left yeah. China, uh, and um, uh, and that's true. And not only, well, um, we call it ism, and as if it's a it's a coherent theory, mm. but Confucianism has never been a really a coherent theory, and that's uh, why exactly um, that's exactly why in early Republican era uh, that uh, early revolutionaries, including Chen Duxiu, who is one of the was one of the founders of the P, of the uh, CCP, Chinese Communist Party. Uh, was against Confucianism and believing that it was irrelevant to building modern modern China, uh, precisely because the hierarchy, uh, because of the, um, uh, the the kind of patriarchal um, hierarchy that is embedded in Confucianism. Mm. Um, so, but. Um, the Chinese Communist Party has always has got two problems. Uh, one is that uh, has always has to deal with tradition and also has to find some astrological, always has this astrological crisis um, because it, uh, it's not built on a it's kind of a borrowed idea, borrowed idea of Marxism as a kind of doctrine that is um, that is uh, uh, um, uh, in the constitution, in the party charter, and also in the constitution. But um, if we look at um, uh, the relationship between Confucianism and the Communist Party is a very interesting one indeed, um, because Mao Zedong, in his young age, he was a, a ardent reader of Confucianism and a lover of Confucianism. And and if you look at um, his um, complete works, uh, you actually found that uh, uh, he quoted he he actually has quoted Stalin the most, um, and has quoted and then followed by uh, legalism and the Confucianism, uh, and Marxism was actually um, counted last. was the last. So that was. <laughs> Very, uh, very interesting. But then uh, he's uh, at the time that uh, so Confucianism was for for the early sister for for Mao Zedong was used as ammunition for um, building his ideological legitimacy. Um, so uh, in order to to use it against liberalism, and um, then. His um, idea sort of turned uh, during the Cultural Revolution, and Confucianism again was used uh, against um, the um, other other ideas. So now, the revival of Confucianism started in the 1990s, actually after after the Cultural Revolution, and then at the beginning of, um, or, or especially after Tiananmen Square, after 1989. Uh, then in the 90s, we saw, uh, we saw a revival of uh, Confucianism in many different ways. There were, there were government-endorsed or government-sanctioned um, um, uh, sort of uh, campaigns to bring back Confucian teaching and to build, uh, to include more articles on media newspapers on Confucianism and publication of more books and also um, government-supported programs, supported projects to work on Confucianism and also a lot of intellectuals were participating in, in it as well uh, to try to bring Confucianism uh, back in different ways, but then different intellectuals would have different uh, different interpretation of Confucianism because it's it's never coherent, and uh, different people can really take different bits and pieces uh, mm. from it. And so, let's for those who aren't aware of Confucius and his teachings um, and the many ways that you could interpret it, uh, are some of the things that the Communist Party since the 1990s have picked up on around the social attitudes and behaviours of their population? Is it mainly around ethics or morality and um, social citizenry or are there other elements of Confucianism that have also kind of been pushed 
um, by various leaders of the CCP. Yeah, so there were different uh, 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 different elements that were picked up from uh, Confucianism, but one uh, uh, one thing that is in common is that to uh, make people feel uh, that uh, the Communist Party is sort of uh, is anchored uh, on this tradition. It's uh, it's um, uh, to to show that uh, there was a sort of lineage in the. Um, in the way that uh, they govern the population, there was uh, there was uh, uh, there was some cultural legitimacy in there. Um, the government respects tradition, respects culture, but a culture defined uh, by uh, by the party. But also also draw on some ideas of uh, of Confucianism. So if we really want to look at Confucianism, despite all those differences and different ways of interpreting Confucianism, if you look at the the kind of uh, pool of knowledge that one could draw from Confucianism or that has drawn from Confucianism as a political philosophy, as a way of governing, is this importance on transforming thinking that human beings are all manageable. Somehow, um, the, if if the government tries very hard, they can they can mold the citizens, condition the citizens in such a way uh, that would not only make them better people, but also make society better and also make the country stronger. So that kind of idea that somehow uh, think believing that believing that all those different various problems in society could be attributed to this one reason, uh, that is the human beings, that if we, if the government uh, tries very hard to mold, the, mold human beings in the society, mm-hmm. then all problems will be resolved. So that kind of fundamental idea. Uh, and also uh, Confucianism starts with this uh, grandiose dream, uh, this, um, uh, this grand unity, uh, this vision of grand unity. Um, and we, we also know, see that Xi Jinping has the same idea of this, uh, of this China dream, which, mm. is, uh, which, is, uh, uh, which is a vision for, for, for China. So uh, make people fixed on that vision and then all kinds of mechanisms or all the control mechanisms are well justified uh, mm-hmm. for that because that is to transform the citizens uh, to be able to work for that grand dream. And it's a massive undertaking because I feel like most people probably don't understand the scale, size and diversity of China as a state as a country um, because it has a number of provinces I believe it's 28 or 29 and there's as you said in um, just earlier at the beginning of the interview 1.4 billion people and growing Um, how does one manage to create a sense of unity and social cohesion if that is the political goal that's already audacious if you were trying to achieve it for a small population like Australia. It's even more audacious when you're looking at China, the state, but also those who are Chinese citizens who are living elsewhere. I mean, what are your thoughts on this idea of social unity and social cohesion as being such a, an important project for China? And is it because it's so geographically large um, that, that it's important but also very difficult? 
Um, yes, a uh, 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 good question. So uh, when you deal with a population that is so diverse and that is so uh, different, there are different ways of doing it. So one way of doing it is to recognise uh, that differences and celebrate those differences, as we do in Australia. And people are from different linguistic and cultural backgrounds and, and make people debate and make, make people um, learn from each other and to improve or to encourage this pluralism and celebrate the differences. Um, and the other way of doing it, uh, which is what uh, what's embedded in Confucianism, is to create this unification. It's somehow believing uh, that there was one single answer to diverse problems. There was one single idea uh, that is better for the whole population. Um, so um, it is an enormous project because if you want to produce this social unity, um, it's um, uh, this co- cohesion. Uh, you can't really stop people from thinking differently. Uh, you can't stop people from uh, from uh, from uh, um, having different views or disagreeing uh, with uh, the the um, uh, sanctioned ideas uh, imposed by the government. Doesn't matter whether you do it through coercion or whether you do it through a more a more uh, covert away um, so uh, that, that's why if you look at uh, uh, imperial China if you look at modern China if you look at contemporary China and then the way that the government somehow does it the ruler does it it's very um, um, it's it's a it's a it's a way that um, uh, that would make people believe uh, that this is the best way of governing. So, mm. um, so that's why there were a few sort of I call it uh, axioms uh, that have to be built into uh, this whole project and this kind of civilizing project. The kind of the, some 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 habitual um, ideas uh, that run through it. Um, so the ideas uh, uh, such as there are people in the society that need to be transformed, that need to be, um, to be um, um, their quality needs to be raised. That's why this Suja discourse became so popular. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea uh, that uh, somehow the population um, needs to be improved in order to improve the nation. And also the idea that individuals do not exist uh, without a community, that individuals do not exist without a strong state. So uh, in under Xi Jinping uh, and also in the previous eras as well, uh, that one idea that is pretty much um, implanted into people's mind also is that without the party, there was no nation. Without the nation, there was no family. Without the family, there was no individual. So individual comes at the end, party first, and then and then party, nation, family, individual. Mm. So that kind of uh, that kind of logic. It's fascinating. Delia, I feel like I'm getting very well informed of and understanding the significance of this anniversary a lot better given the history that we've been covering. In terms of the celebrations and the performative elements of this 70-year anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. I mean, there are many elements to it that we've already been witnessing. And um, there was a ceremony to give medals um, to very significant figures in Chinese history, scientists and um, military figures, um, men and women. And then we also have been promised a kind of huge military parade um, with many, many 
people involved, but 300,000. also yeah, at marching and also the kind of weaponry, new technology, military technology that will be on show. What do you think um, the the types of things that Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party are doing in this 70 year anniversary? What do you think it is signalling to its own population, but also to, for example? Hong Kong and to um, other countries like Australia. Well, what uh, uh, with this grand celebration is uh, uh, um, is a choreographed, of course, uh, display uh, with three hundred thousand people participating in it. Uh, but they're carefully chosen, and uh, there have been many rehearsals of the parade. And ordinary people are not allowed to watch or not allowed to watch on the site, uh, and also. Um, uh, um, uh, for days that many restaurants have been closed down and uh, 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 people who are close to, who live close uh, to the site were asked to take holidays or asked to have the windows shut. Um, so without really general public participating in it, but just with selected uh, participating in uh, this kind of uh, display and performance um, so uh, what is signaling to the world is uh, to the world and to the Chinese uh, uh, nationals themselves uh, is to say that China is strong and the strength of China because during the military parade uh, there were some have been reported uh, there would be some advanced weapons shown as well uh, so to show that the might and the wealth of China to um, make people feel confident in the, the Communist Party because the Communist Party is experiencing uh, a tremendous uh, legitimacy crisis. So, so this is necessary for the party to uh, to demonstrate the strength and, and its opportunity for them to demonstrate their might and wealth. And and in fact, that has been. Uh, it's not the first time, but this time is. Um, it's going to be the biggest, um, the biggest parade, and and because it's a it's a it's a critical time, and also uh, with all the, um, um, well, in the Chinese Communist Party's eyes, the chaos everywhere in Hong Kong, the unrest and all that. So they need to convince uh, their own people and also convince uh, the world uh, that they are taking China on a a path a. Um, a path of might and wealth, and that's how they can gain the trust of the people. Mm, get them behind the mm. project. Yeah. yeah, and it's working. This yeah. whole patriotic education and uh, this kind of uh, um, 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 sort of uh, sentiment that the party is trying to um, create uh, is actually working among the general public. Mm. But then there was uh, so many different views as well on, on WeChat. Uh, but then every uh, people who have different views and have to be very careful with uh, with what they say because um, uh, this is also the critical time that where uh, the Communist Party is uh, working very hard to ban uh, WeChat accounts and uh, to to ban different views as well. Mm. I'm speaking with Dr. Delia Lin from the University of Melbourne and we're talking about the 70-year anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China uh, around the idea of the Communist Party and the central government being, in their mind, a successful and viable model of governing um, for others to potentially emulate in some way. And I'm thinking about the... um, the interesting connection with the Soviet Union, which didn't make it 
to 70 years and now seeing China making it and and celebrating that fact as being a, a kind of example of the fact that it can be successful, that it's created wealth, that it's um, given its citizens opportunities. What are your thoughts on the ways that the um, Communist Party and the central government now is signalling to the world its um, success and uh, the kind of value of having this overarching ideology that we've been discussing that guides government. Yeah, so um, um, so Xi Jinping certainly is telling the world and telling its own people uh, that um, this is a China model and China sticks to it. So before Xi Jinping, a very a big difference between Xi Jinping and his pretty and and his uh, uh, previous regimes is that uh, is that uh, the previous regimes were still in a very sort of defensive uh, kind of attitude to say, well, um, um, because they couldn't really answer the questions on human rights and and all the other concepts. But but uh, Xi Jinping is saying. That well, this is this is the way that China goes, and this is a model that can be imitated by other developing countries. And this focus on infrastructure, not only just economic model, uh, but also uh, the political uh, ideology uh, as well. That uh, a political ideology that um, that is. Um, um, uh, for for Xi Jinping, um, he he talks about this cultural determinism that because of the because of tradition, he said to the previous um, uh, Greek uh, prime minister that um, uh, that your your model of liberal democracy is based on your uh, Greek tradition, and our model is based on Chinese tradition. But of course, Chinese tradition defined by the Communist Party. So. Uh, to uh, uh, to take uh, China on the path that he calls uh, the China model, and he calls a new style political system, political party system. So, uh, and he calls on his people um, and also party members to have this confidence. So, this four confidences uh, that uh, that uh, Xi Jinping has been promoting, and one of them is cultural confidence, and the others are confidence in the system. Uh, so to to say this is where China is going. And in during this whole process, so we see a really systematic building of uh, new constitutions and systematic building of discourse to justify uh, this model. So uh, it is absolutely fascinating. Mm, it is. It's going to be even more fascinating to watch it evolve. And it's, as you I'm, are well aware, it's always unpredictable, though you can see some signs of things happening and changing. And as you say, the crossroads keep coming up and yeah. being bypassed. And the resistance is also very strong as well within yeah. the party and also without and amongst the pop, uh, amongst the people as well. Mm. So we will see a very split uh, China in the in terms of uh, the way that people think uh, in terms of uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the way that uh, things are done. So that's why it is unpredictable in the sense that it can go really any any Anyway, mm. um, so absolutely fascinating to watch. Yeah, Delia, it's been so fascinating to speak with you, and I really appreciate you coming in to share with us your immense knowledge of China and the Chinese language and political philosophy, and um, all the best with everything you're doing on this. Thank you very much, Amy. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Delia Lin, who is a senior lecturer in Chinese studies at the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. And we've been talking about the 70th anniversary of the foundation or formation of the People's Republic of China under the CCP. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. I now have with me in the studio two people who are important to Geelong in different ways. One is part of the Geelong Football Club. He's the vice president of that club. His name is Bob Gartland. And Jason Smith is the director of the Geelong Gallery. And there is a very special exhibition which is on at the moment called The Greatest Team of All, Treasures from the Bob Gartland Collection. It opened about a week and a half ago roughly. And uh, I got a chance to see it on the weekend, Saturday morning, before the grand final to soak up the atmosphere of football and how important premierships are, including minor premierships, I've got to say. It's still meaningful um, this year to finish top of the ladder in what was a very hectic and unpredictable uh, year of football. So I'm welcoming now into the studio... Bob. Hi there, Bob. Morning, Amy. Thanks for having us in. Great to have you. And Jason. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you doing? We're doing very well, thank you. Thank you for making the trip up the highway. It's always a pleasure. And it's always a trip. It is a trip, (laughs) isn't it? I feel like it just gets longer and longer all the time. Yep. Yeah, there's always a breakdown on the Westgate. Yes. And uh, now there's rubbish all over the road out this way, so... It was a it was an eventful trip. We're, well, you're an Ocean Grove person, so yeah. the three of us know what it's like. But it yeah. just makes you appreciate the beauty of the Bellarine, doesn't it? And the Surf Coast, the even only more. peninsula. How lucky we are to live in Geelong. We are. Mm. It's true. We wouldn't be biased at all. Not much. No. 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 Um, we were just talking off air that Jason, you are semi new to Geelong. I've been just... there for I will have been I've been there for just over three and a half years. Yeah. And I I have been I've been the gallery director since April two thousand and sixteen. And uh, it was important that I lived in Geelong. My partner lives in North Fitzroy, but we just have this mobile life. I love living in Geelong and it is really very important if you're leading or helping lead a cultural organisation in a great city like Geelong. And the gallery is a very old gallery. It's, it's coming up to its 125th birthday. Um, it's, it's really important you're part of the community. And people's attitude to you really does alter when they know that you're part of the community, you're living amongst them. And mm. I think you get a – Geelong's got a great art community. It's got a great cultural community as much as it's got a great sporting heritage. So, um, it, you know, it's wonderful to be part of a very dynamic city in that sense and, and you need to live there to be part of it fully. I feel like that's so true. And it's a unique community and with its own set of challenges and beautiful qualities Um and, it, you know, it does encompass not just Geelong. I'm, often we think about Geelong as just that city, but it's really the whole region of yeah. Ballerine and the Surf Coast, which perceives themselves to be part of Geelong. The city of... I mean, there's, there's the greater Geelong mm. area, I suppose. Um, you know, I, I think it's important too that... I mean, I sit on a few committees and there are people from other locations, Torquay, Aries, Anglesey, yeah. Colac... They they see themselves as very distinct, and they are indeed. Mm, mm. Um, but Geelong is a is a major metropolis unto itself, and even though it's only seventy clicks down the road from Melbourne, it is not Melbourne. No. And so the reason why Bob and I have undertaken this exhibition is because the collection in itself is not just a reflection of the history of the football club, but very much a reflection of the city itself and and the social fabric of the city and the connection between people and the club. 
So it's, it's been a fascinating exercise in that sense. To... Yes, and the secret's out with Geelong. There's more people moving to Geelong from Melbourne than ever before. And, uh, yeah, I think um, most uh, most uh, of the people that are coming from Melbourne to Geelong are absolutely flabbergasted with the quality of life we have there. Yeah. And uh, it's certainly... Not a secret any longer because we've had the highest capital growth, I think, in the state in the last couple of years. So it's been been an extraordinary explosion for us. It has. Um, we need another public <coughs> hospital because we're straining under just having one, really. But that's a whole other story. Mm. Um, Geelong is an interesting place to live. And even when I was in high school, um, it was really still a small town and it's although it has a significant prominence as a regional centre of Victoria – like it, culturally, it has been for most of my lifetime quite small, and it's only now really expanding and becoming very cosmopolitan. And you know, there's really trendy cafes. And you know, before I used to only be able to get an espresso type coffee from the milk bar across the road from my high school, and now you can go to cafes <laughs> anywhere in Newtown. Yeah. So you know, it, it's changing all the time, isn't it? But Geelong, was that Geelong High School, Amy? No, I went to Sacred Heart. <coughs> Sacred Heart. I know that yeah. little cafe. Do you? Mm. It's a really great On the cafe. corner? Yeah, yeah. Mm. No, there were some really wonderful people there. Um, I, I went to school with um, Peter Riccardi's cousin, so I heard all about, you know, football from every angle when I was growing up. And uh, obviously my family, you know, influenced me, taking me to the football to see Gary Ablett Sr. Um, play at Cadinia Park. There's so many really important memories for many people in Geelong that associate great fond moments in their lives with the Geelong Football Club. I mean, let's start out with this kind of inextricable connection between the Geelong Football Club and its kind of vital importance mm. to a huge number of people in Geelong. Uh, historically... The stories have run parallel between the football club and the city. Um, uh, 1857 saw the creation of the longest railway in Australia, and that was the Geelong to Melbourne Railway. And in those days, Geelong was the commercial centre of, of Victoria and certainly the commercial centre of the Western District. And it was the gateway to the gold fields and the wool industry and so on. So it was known commercially as the pivot. And ultimately, our football team, when it was formed in July 18, 1859, at the Victoria Hotel on the corner of Mirable and Mallop Street in Geelong, we were known as the Pivotonians. Mm. And uh, we were known as the Pivotonians all the way through till 1923 when, um, when we became... Uh, the Black Cats and ultimately just the Cats. But that story of Geelong and Geelong's history and, as you say, this inextricable link between the club and the fortunes of the city running parallel over 160 years. This year is our 160th birthday, Mm. which is extraordinary. We are the second oldest uh, football club or sporting organisation, continuous sporting organisation in the world, second only to Melbourne Football Club. So our story not just runs parallel with the city story, but it also runs parallel to the story of football because the creator of football Mm. or the fellow known as the father of football, Tom Wills, was a Geelong person. 
and he lived at uh, uh, Point Henry, a long time before Alcoa yeah, got there. Mm. Say. <laughs> and uh, interestingly, this year we've actually located the site of the Bellevue Homestead and we're working with Alcoa and the City of Greater Geelong and the National Trust at the moment to actually put a plaque on that site where the Wills family lived. And um, so that's an important part, an integral part of the story of the Geelong Football Club in the city. Mm. How did football and the Geelong Football Club evolve and a game or a code mm. be created? Um, the, the Melbourne Football Club was created in 1858 and uh, Tom Wills had a role to play uh, in that and also his uh, cousin, Henry Colden Harrison, had a role to play with Hammersley and others uh, in the in the creation of, of the Melbourne Football Club. And uh, the year following, Geelong was created uh, on the back of an advertisement that was placed in the Geelong Advertiser on the 15th of July in 1859 by Alexander Mason. And uh, the, the advertisement said, Admirers of football uh, meet at the Victoria Hotel on Tuesday evening at 7.30pm. Signed A. Mason. So they met at the Victoria Hotel and uh, a football club was formed. And in that first year, in 1859, they played five practice matches at the rear of the Port Arlington Hotel, <laughs> which was nowhere near Port Arlington. Mm. It was actually out uh, near the Eastern Gardens. Uh, and uh, they played five practice matches there, with, which often went for two or three hours with no score being scored. And they, they would often then just adjourn to the hotel <laughs> for refreshments. And uh, so Geelong Football Club adopted the Melbourne ru- rules in 1859 and then it wouldn't be till the following year in 1860 when they played their first match against Melbourne mm. at the Argyle Ground in uh, Aberdeen Street in Geelong and uh, that was the first match. went for three hours and it was a scoreless draw. Oh. Call us a draw, wow. <laughs> Can you even call it a draw? But the call to admirers of football for before you know that led to the formation of the Geelong Football Club, Bob, is that because the people had seen what Melbourne had done and what it was how it was playing? Well, there was already this interest in football of a number of different varieties. As far back as eighteen forty in Geelong, they were playing probably six or seven different styles of football. There was rugby. There was a hybrid game that was a mix of rugby and the association game, which we later named soccer. There was the indigenous game and a whole range of different variations. So there was an interest in football of all different types. Mm. And what Mason's ad did was uh, focus that interest so that people from all different... Uh, persuasions came together to create this club with the interest in in the game of football and when when you go through the early documentation and the records uh, there's this singular driving passion and the, the, it was interesting the 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 letters to the editor in 1859 um, spoke about giving the teetotalers something to do. 
That's you know, the funniest part, is kicking. that it was a healthy outlet for their uptight obsessions. Well, there's a fellow called um, uh, Stitt Jenkins, and he w- led the teetotal body in Geelong in 1859, and he actually, back as early as May, suggested a football club to keep uh, all the teetotalers uh, busy. And uh, the opponents of the teetotalers thought it was a fantastic idea if they belted the living daylights out of each other on the football field because it gave them something else to do yeah. rather than complain about people drinking alcohol. So <laughs> Stitt Jenkins then created the Recreation Society, which you know gave uh, people a whole lot of other interests other than football. Mm. But that first, that first year in, in, the, in the life of the Geelong Football Club changed the city forever because from that moment Geelong started to become the centre of the football world's focus because as early as 1860 and and certainly in the 1870s and the 1880s we won uh, seven premierships in nine years which hasn't been done. Mm. And the best football was actually being played in Geelong, not in Melbourne. And the two best football teams in 1879 were the Geelong Football Club and Barwon. Now, Barwon was made up of a a team of factory workers and the Geelong Football Club was made up of public school boys from the Geelong Grammar and the Geelong College. So you had this bunch of oh, thugs from the mills. That's massive. <laughs> playing against these public and they liked nothing more than belting the living daylights out of these school boys. Yep. Which they did. Nothing's changed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To a point where Barwon actually got uh, deregistered as a club in the early wow. 1880s and uh, but Geelong continued <clears throat> on and won the premierships that they did and uh, yeah, it sort of cemented Geelong's place in football history. Mm. When did the iconic uh, navy and white hoop uniform come about? Was that right at the beginning or close to? Uh, no, it's it's interesting because back in the 1870s, uh, prior to the blue and white hoops being part of our uh, DNA, uh, Geelong wore white knickerbockers or white trousers yep. with white shirts. Mm, and wow. our nickname was the flower sacks. Because we looked like a bunch of flower sacks running around. So, um, and there's a lot of discussion about the the creation of the blue and white hoops, but within two years, Geelong College, Geelong Grammar, Barwon Rowing Club, and Geelong Football Club, Mm. who were all integrated and related in different ways, all wore blue and white hoops. Mm. So, that was in the late 1870s and um, we adopted the blue and white uh, hooped jumper. Mm. And prior to that, there'd also been a plain navy blue jumper, uh, which in one of the film footages that we show at the exhibition is of a game in 1911 between Geelong and Ballarat, which used to be played each Easter Monday. And because the Ballarat jersey was a vertical stripe jersey and it was a bit similar to Geelong, this is probably the first clash jersey that they've ever that's ever been used. But Geelong wore again the plain navy blue, and uh, uh, and that's on that film that, that we show at the gallery as part of this exhibition. So um, the the blue and white hoops were adopted in the eighteen seventies, and uh, and then we were known 
then as the Pivotonians, mm. right up until 1923 when uh, Sam Wells, the great cartoonist of the time, uh, suggested that Geelong's poor start to the 1923 season could be assisted by the obscure invo- evoking of good luck of black cats. And he drew a cartoon to that effect. And then Geelong won the next week. And then they had another cartoon and Geelong won the next week. And then on the third week, Geelong adopted the cat as a mascot. And on the fourth week, an enterprising fellow produced some enamel button pins with uh, the black cat's Mm. Geelong's mascot and sold them at the ground. So wow. this was probably the first instance of some illegal merchandising going <laughs> yes, on. Unlicensed. In 1923, <laughs> and the, the leg didn't, uh, le- leg didn't get a clip. <laughs> <laughs> wow, things have really changed, haven't they? It's interesting. Uh, I actually have one of those buttons yeah, in the from that actual game. Oh, really? Is in that... the exhibition. Wow. Which is pretty rare. Yeah. Mm. I didn't know it was from the first game instance of that that's, coming about. That's, that's the first time the cat was uh, used or, or nominated or named as the, the mascot for, for Geelong Football yeah, Club. Right. I'm interested in this idea of superstition because I know a lot of football fans are very superstitious. I'm extremely superstitious. <laughs> a lot of Geelong people are, especially when anyone mentions bye, everyone gets a little bit superstitious. Um, but why was the black cat a sign of good luck? Well, in those days, um, it could be good or bad luck, uh-huh. depending on the way that you interpreted it, the, um, uh, the cat, I suppose. Uh, and Wells was suggesting in his cartoon that this was the good luck that they needed. So um, Geelong were sort of innocent bystanders and just let it happen. <laughs> so the thing actually evolved organically, mm. which is probably the best way that things like that and... Uh, social badges should arrive. It should be owned by the people, and this is what actually happened in the, in the end. It wasn't the club who 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 forced the mascot on the people. It was actually the people who decided that they wanted to bring this cat as part of their story. So yeah. that's how that's how we became the cats. It's really phenomenal. But they were called the black cats into the early fifties. And then it was just the what Cats. was it fifty three or fifty two or fifty three? Oh, well into the fifties, mid 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 nineteen fifties, they were still producing merchandise with the black cats on it. Interestingly, as part of the exhibition as well, I've I've got a trophy which we believe is probably the only trophy that we received in nineteen fifty two after winning the back to back premierships in fifty one and fifty two. And the trophy's actually engraved to the black cats. In 1952, oh, really? so it was still mm. a pretty formal uh, expression, mm. uh, and it wasn't until perhaps later in the 1950s that they dropped the black, and we just became the cats. It's fascinating to see how the logos continue to evolve as well, because a lot of people have different attachments to different representations of the cat and I have my attachment but it's pretty predictable as being during my childhood what that logo was at the time which was that really kind of angry hissing cat um, from the 90s which mm. is like so retro now when you look at it that is. yeah I, I want to bring it back but that's just me it's interesting because um, the football club was 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 born out of the cricket club mm. 
as Stitt Jenkins actually said back then, that cricketers were being encased in uh, masses of superabundant flesh. <laughs> which I think was code for stacking on a few kilograms Kilos. over the winter. <laughs> and uh, and he also felt that, and Wills, uh, when he wrote the letter to Bell's Life, uh, mentioned that cricket grounds could be well served to be trampled upon um, during the winter to make them better to play cricket on in the summer. So the the, the, the football club was formed out of the out of the cricket club and for many, many years... It was the Geelong Football and Cricket Club, and the logo represented the Geelong Cricket and Football Club, so GCFC. Mm. So they actually had a logo which was very similar to Carlton. Oh, right. Okay. Where, the, where all the, the letters uh, sit on top of mm, each other. Superimposed. And again, that went right through until the 19... variation in the early 1950s. So... Um, it's a it's a it's an interesting story when you talk about the evolution of the logo, yeah. Uh, because the very earliest logo was was that of the Geelong Cricket and Football Club. Wow, that's amazing, Bob. You are, you know so much about the Geelong Football Club's history, which is fantastic, and it is a mark of the attention and dedication that you have paid to this area for. I'm guessing a lot of your life. Um, You've collected so much. And when I was at the gallery visiting on Saturday, the staff were like, oh, this is just like a drop in the ocean. Like they were excited to tell me how massive it was because it is massive. There's like so much to see. Like you really need to commit some time to enjoy it fully. Um, But I was astounded to hear that that's only just the tip of the iceberg of your own collection, Bob. So what... Was this like an evolutionary process for you? Did you, you didn't set out to create a massive, you know, time capsule of the Geelong Football Club, or how did this all come um, about? It's interesting. I went to a small school outside of Geelong, and um, uh, the the currency in the schoolyard was football cards. So it's nineteen sixty three. Our school teacher was a fanatical Geelong supporter. <laughs> He told he got all the school together. I think there was twenty of us, and made the announcement one day that the greatest footballer in Australia was coming to play for Geelong. And he told us about Polly Farmer, and we all thought that Polly was a very unusual name for a footballer, and we'd never heard of Polly Farmer. And uh, so our teacher cut out his photograph and the newspaper cutting and stuck it by the back door. So when we all filed out at the end of each school day, as we walked past, and this is before he'd played a game, we would walk past and say, good night, Polly, and just tap the, the photograph on the way oh, out wow. the door. So when I was nine years old, I was playing marbles and winning football cards and my goal was to win as many polypharma cards as I could <laughs> and uh, I've managed to hang on to one of those for my whole life and uh, and uh, that's probably my most treasured thing, not my most valuable item but mm. my most treasured thing. I met Polly when I was nine and he came to a pie night at our little league club and, you know, shook my hand and his middle finger went up to my elbow. His hands were so big and he was just a beautiful, humble, 
gentle champion and uh, we all had the opportunity to ask him a question and he came over and shook my hand and and I couldn't get the words to a question out. <laughs> I, I had three or four beauties to ask him but yeah. I just couldn't get the words out and um, I again then met him a bit later in my life, in my teens and um, um, my wife's father uh, asked me to meet him in the in in Geelong City and eight thirty on a Saturday morning and his father, my wife's father pulled up and uh, Polly Farmer was sitting in the passenger seat with Billy Goggin sitting in the back and I think it might have been Brother Steve from St Gabriel's Monastery in the back seat and my father-in-law, my now father-in-law, then just wound the windows down and said, uh, "Jump in, son. We're off to the races." And uh, so for a couple of years, I used to run bets around. <laughs> And I wow. got to know all the bookmakers on a first-name basis and um, we lost Polly this year. Mm. And But the last few years I was fortunate enough to fly over to Perth on a few occasions to visit him and uh, uh, he's been an important person in my life. And um, So that whole commencement, if you like, of my collecting started with my Polly Farmer card mm. in 1963. And no, I didn't dream of building this... Uh, huge collection it's something that's happened organically and uh uh as as time goes on there are things that become more important and the collection of data and uh imaging i've now collected 116,000 photographs which i've now digitized and catalogued dated and named and uh i've now collected 850 game films Back to 1911, and these these are at least as important as objects mm. because they they tell a different history and a different story. And um, I've I've also started collecting, uh, or have been collecting audio. So at the exhibition, you'll you'll in one room you'll watch. The 1911 game between Geelong and Essendon at the East Melbourne Cricket Ground, and then the 1931, 37, 51, 52, and 63 mm. grand finals. And in the other room, when you walk around, you'll hear the audio from 3GL, which was the local Geelong station with Leo O'Halloran and Ivor Grundy commentating the 1963 grand final as you walk around. And you look at the uh, different objects in that room. It's mm. it's relevant because in that room there's actually the 1948 premiership flag, which is on display, which were the reserve grade team one in that year, mm. which is looking a bit like the Shroud of Turin at the moment, <laughs> but it's it's a bit of a relic. Yeah, it's that one that's it's massive. It it's is like massive. laid out in the middle of the room there. Yeah, yeah, it's phenomenal. I was t like really overwhelmed by that room, and that was the first one I went in. Um, and yeah, it only got bigger as you went to the other room as well. It's it's really interesting in that in that room. There's a couple of other things that are really uh, important. Mm. Uh, there's a 1900 album of football cards which is the oldest set of football cards certainly for the Geelong team and I think it's the second oldest complete set of any team uh, of Australian football in the world and there's also a letter from 
the then coach in 1952, who was Reg Hickey, one of the great Geelong names, that he wrote to uh, the father of Jeff Williams, who'd just come up from Gippsland and won the best and fairest in his first year at the club as a young lad and in a premiership year. And Reg Hickey wrote this letter. um, And in the letter to Jeff Williams' father, he says, I have strived for quite a while now to get the type of chap that we have in our club. And whilst I'm proud of their football ability, I'm even more prouder of their conduct and their manliness on and off the field. And that goes straight to the values that we talk about today, about being good men and good people. And Hickey was saying that being a good man and a good person was actually more important than being a good footballer back in 1952. And that goes to the whole value set of our football club and many football clubs today. Mm. Mm. And um, it's, it, it's a great piece of uh, uh, social history from that time because Hickey was seen as a very hard taskmaster, but there was this side to him, this very human, personal side to him where values and character first was the most important thing. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I was reading a history book about Geelong and I think it was for the 150th maybe and they were talking about how a lot of the coaches had a, a re- religious or Christian background and they were guided by you know some strong morals or ideas of being good and you know a, a model citizen, I guess. I'm interested in the club culture, as you say, how it's what the continuous features are of the Geelong Football Club, not just, you know, the hoops, like the visual and the obvious symbolic things that have continued, but what, to your mind, being the vice president of the club, has continued in terms of the spirit of the club in, in addition to what you've just mentioned? Well, I think, I think Geelong Football Club's unique in, in lots of ways. Uh, during the Second World War, um, uh, our whole team enlisted and went away to war. Hmm. And we went into recess for two years because uh, we had no players. Yeah. And uh, the the army had taken our ground to use it for training and exercises uh, in Corio Oval out in the Eastern Gardens. And when we came back in 1943, we applied to re-enter the competition hmm. and uh, – uh, some clubs opposed our re-entry, um, Essendon in particular. Uh, and Essendon's um, reasoning was that Geelong was the end of the earth. It, it cost too much money to get there with petrol wow. rationing. And and uh, so so there were clubs that were actually opposed to us coming back into the competition or, you know, uh, assuming or, or recommencing our, our story. And North Melbourne actually stood with us at the time and uh, said that, you know, if, if Geelong are out, we're out. And uh, it was a great thing at the time to stand firm with us. And that, that whole notion of this rivalry between Geelong and Melbourne, we, as a football club, we often think that we're unique. Mm. And we... we we believe that we are, and we're, our club is owned obviously by our members, and we're there because of our members, and that's been the case for 160 years. 
that our football club has been so firmly entrenched as part of the community. It's more than just a football club and football's more than just a game. Yeah. It's particularly in Geelong. You know, our community centre as part of our football club is extraordinary. You know, we've had over 120,000 visitors through our community centre and then we run 16 community programs out of our football club that are as part of the Geelong fabric of our society um, it's extraordinary the support that emanates from the club and permeates through the whole of the Geelong community and um, you know I'm proud of and we're proud of uh, who we are as a club and and the fine young men that we've produced over a long period of time and this goes right back to uh, Joe Slater in the First World War when you go to the exhibition, you'll see a 1912 team photograph with Joe Slater sitting in the front left. He went away. He was one of the greatest athletes in Australia at the time and went away to war and didn't come home, lost his life in France after re-entering the battle as a wounded man to bring people out. And um, and again, he epitomises the Geelong story. Yeah. And... Uh, there's a whole bunch of stories around Joe Slater and people like him and um, there's been scallywags along the way as well. But, um, yes, the Geelong story is firmly entrenched as part of Geelong City's DNA and I think that's what makes us unique mm. um, and our value set changes. Yeah. But it's important and central to who we are. Mm. What a perfect way to finish. I'm sorry, I wanted to ask more of you, Jason, as well. No, but... no, no, it's Bob. No, it's fascinating. I mean, this is this is what it's been like for the last couple of yeah. years, listening to these marvellous stories. stories. Mm. And, and, you know, it is a remarkable exhibition and yeah. it's been a real delight for us to put it on because it just uh, demonstrates that the gallery is there for a very broad audience mm. and for you know, a broad review of the culture that makes us the city that we are. Yeah. Um, no, but it's very important that Bob has this great opportunity to yeah. see his collection but also to for explain it to in, this, in, the, in it its marvellous complexity. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much, both of you. You've, like, done such a wonder for Geelong, I think, in bringing what is an amazing collection to the rest of the area and also to Victoria. And I really appreciate your time and coming up today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for having us. It's my pleasure. I've been speaking with Geelong Football Club Vice President Bob Gartland and Geelong Gallery Director Jason Smith. They have been talking about their exhibition, The Greatest Team of All, Treasures from the Bob Gartland Collection, which is on at the Geelong Gallery. And when does it finish, Jason? 10th of November. Ah, so there's still time, plenty of time. And it is free. Yeah, Yeah. that is fantastic. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.